Good morning, Salt City. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus this morning. I think we're coming across a pretty timely passage based on what's happening in our world right now. Like all of you, this week at different times, my eyes were glued to my different devices, kind of keeping an eye on what's happening in Ukraine. And I think that one of the things that has passed through my soul is just kind of re-examining the basic belief that I have about God. Because I think seeing kids huddled in a subway and seeing Christians praying in the middle of their city that's under attack and seeing missiles hit apartment complexes, it makes us ask this basic question, where is God in the midst of this dark world? And the declaration of the book of Exodus, and in fact, the banner that flies over the whole Bible, is that God is the Lord. In other words, Putin isn't the Lord, Pharaoh isn't the Lord, even when it looks like dictators or authority figures in our life are making us miserable, God is in charge. He is, in fact, not distant. He sees, he's in control, and he loves us. And so we're basically going to see three implications of that reality this morning as we look at this text. The first implication of God being the Lord is that he is to be obeyed. So we're in Exodus chapter 5, starting with verse 1. We're just going to read the verse seven, first seven verses to start. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So you remember, God has showed up to Moses. He's sent him back to the people of Egypt who have been enslaved in Egypt, the Israelites, for 400 years. And he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him that the God of all the earth has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice. And then he kind of reiterates it by saying, I don't know the Lord. And it's interesting how Moses responds to him. Moses says to him, 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And then he says, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. Now, you'll remember that what God actually tells Moses to tell Pharaoh and the Israelites is that his name is I Am. In other words, he tells him that he is the creator of the ends of the earth, that he is to be universally obeyed by everybody, that he is in charge, that he's never had a beginning and he's never had an end. And so what you notice immediately about Moses is that he sort of downplays who God has told him that he is. So we've got Pharaoh saying, just straight up, who's the Lord that I should obey him? And I don't know the Lord. And we've got Moses saying, well, the Lord is the God of the Hebrews. He's our God. In a way, what Moses is doing is he's relativizing who God is out of fear. I think the other indication of that is that he says, please, like he's kind of bowing to Pharaoh a little bit. Please let us go because our God might hurt us if you don't let us go. And, And so we've got both of these sort of groups of people represented by their leaders downplaying who God is, not fully understanding that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so then Pharaoh, as a result of sort of this marginalization of God in his own heart and sort of Moses' answer, says, why do you take the people away from their work? Listen, you're bothering me with this conversation, and the people of Israel know that you're here, and you're basically keeping them from being as productive as they possibly could be. So he says, I tell you what, since you're trying to take them away from their work, I'm going to make their work even worse for them. So now the Israelites not only have to make a certain amount of bricks to build these beautiful pyramids that are still standing in Egypt, but they're also going to have to gather the straw to make the bricks to make everything harder. Guys, harsh treatment of people under your leadership is always the result of marginalizing God. It's taking the place of God. It's pretending that you're the Lord instead of bowing yourself to the Lord. And so in his disobedience to God, Pharaoh makes the people under his leadership's lives miserable. Guys, I see this all the time as a dad of five kids. I see how when my kids don't acknowledge my authority, how they start sort of fighting with each other and doing things that they're not supposed to do. So one example of that is they think that I can't hear them when they're in our basement. So our basement doesn't even have a door on it. We live in a bi-level. There's two kind of short sets of stairs. You can hear everything that's happening in the basement. And so often I'll be in the kitchen doing something. I'll hear my kids down there and they'll start fighting and they'll start saying things to each other that they would never say to each other in front of me. And inevitably, one of them will run upstairs crying about something that one of them did to the other and there's often discipline that happens as a result of that. Well, 
Why are they saying things in the basement that they would never say in front of me? Because in a sense, they've taken themselves out from under my leadership and said, there's no dad here. I'm in charge now. I can do whatever I want. And that's what we see with Pharaoh. He's saying, listen, who's the Lord that I should obey him? There's no God that I'm accountable to. I can do whatever I want. I can treat these people however I want. And yet we know from the testimony of Scripture, for example, from Romans 1.20, that that is far from the truth. This is what the book of Romans says. For his, that's God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So in other words, what Romans 1.20 is saying is that Pharaoh's lying. He knows that God is the Lord. You don't have to have a Bible to know that there is a God that we are all accountable to. God will judge every person on the earth, no matter how much or how little power they have, for their response to his authority. No one is getting away with anything. And we all need to be reminded that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of God and give it an account for even the careless words that we speak. And so when we look at the actions of Putin or we look at the actions of Pharaoh in this blatant way where they say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We should see a reflection of ourselves in that and recognize that we all have this propensity to deny God's existence so that we can do whatever we want. And scripture is here to tell us no one gets away with anything. Okay, the second implication we see of God being the Lord in this passage is that his ways are not our ways. God acts in ways that are, are strange to us and mysterious to us and make us ask the question, where is God and what is he doing? Let's pick up the story in verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Remember, God had come to Moses, told him that he was going to deliver his people. God had told the people of Israel that God was going to deliver his people. God goes to Pharaoh, tells him to let the people of Israel go, 
And the result of that conversation is that Pharaoh has made the lives of the Israelite slaves even more miserable. So here's what people do when their lives are made more more miserable. Well, they don't have access directly to God to grab a hold of him and shake him. So they take the person that is closest to God, to them, and they get mad at them first. So they go after Moses. You've made us stink in the sight of the Egyptians. You messed this up. It's your fault. Why did you even ask the Egyptians to let us go? Why didn't you just leave us alone? Our lives were better before This is terrible. Sometimes in my job, I experience this reality. People who are mad about the circumstances of their life or what's happening in the church come and blame me for things that are outside of my control. Really, a lot of times, the anger that's directed at leadership in the church is anger with the way that God is doing things. Because this is the way that God works. God doesn't want to kind of take you around suffering to become more like him and to grow in your character. He wants to take you directly through it. Guys, I can also relate to Moses' response because what happens, right? The Israelites come, they complain to him like, this is all your fault, and what does Moses do? He blames God. Why? Because there's no leader above him from an earthly perspective that he can blame. So Moses says a few things to God as he sort of gives God an earful. He straight up says, Why have you done evil? He accuses God of doing evil. Then he says, why did you send me? I was just fine when I was a shepherd in Midian, minding my own business. Why did you send me here? And then he says to God, sort of this character assassination, you have not delivered us at all. He promised you were going to rescue us. You haven't done that at all. Moses and the Israelites think that the way that God should work is by immediately relieving their suffering. But God's plan is that they would go through suffering and see his hand of deliverance. Guys, this is our story as a church, and this is the story of every individual believer. To have a God story is to have a story where you suffered deeply and God delivered you from that suffering. I was reminded of that just a couple weeks ago. I was talking to one of my friends who's also a church planter in the Twin Cities, and I was sharing with him about my daughter's struggles in school related to sort of seizures and sort of some psychological stuff that she has going on. And he said to me that when he was in second grade, he had a similar story. So he also had a twin. My daughter has a twin. And he said that his twin brother was in accelerated classes 
when they were in second grade. And he was struggling so much in school that he was placed in special education. So he remembers, sort of in those formative years of elementary school, that the people who were in sort of his breakout group in school were all either in wheelchairs, had autism, or had Down syndrome. And he remembers just sitting there and thinking to himself, there's no hope for me. I am so stupid. And just comparing himself to the twin, I mean, you can imagine the feeling that he had. But, but what gave me hope as he was telling me that is this guy is now a church planter. He has multiple sort of advanced degrees. And as a result of sort of his upbringing, he's not a proud, self-righteous person. But he's dependent on God and he recognizes that what he has in his life is a direct result of God having brought him through suffering. What's your story? What has God done in your life? What suffering has he brought you through? How has he used that suffering to shape you into the person that you are? Because maybe as we think about that, it will reframe the way that we think about the present suffering that we're going through and the future suffering that we're definitely going to encounter. And it will make us see that God is not in the wrong to not immediately alleviate the suffering, but he is actually at work in it. He has a purpose for it. And so maybe instead of so quickly questioning God, like the Israelites and Moses did, we would bow before him and learn to say to him, not my will, but your will be done. Even in the most painful circumstances in our lives. Because we'll see that the third thing that we know about the Lord is that he keeps his promises. Hold on just a second. Got a little cold. You could feel it starting to drip, you know? It's just a miserable feeling when you're speaking. All right. He keeps his promises. Let's look at Exodus 6, verses 1 through 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." 
who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is a remarkable response that God has to people that are angry with him. So get this. Everyone has basically lost faith in God. They're questioning him. They're mad at him. Their spirits are broken and crushed. They don't believe God. They don't think that he's going to come through on his promise. And God's response to them is not, now you shall see what we can do together. He doesn't say, hey guys, if you guys will kind of pep yourselves up and believe in me better, then you're going to escape from, from Egypt. Instead, he says, now you shall see what I will do. God looks at the situation. No one believes in him. Pharaoh is opposing him. These people have been enslaved for 400 years. And he says, I got this. I don't need anybody's help. And he gives a few reasons for that. He says, I am God Almighty. He reiterates his name, the Lord. I am who I am. The beginning and the end. And then he says, as a result of being God Almighty and being the great I am, I will keep my covenant. What's a covenant? It's where God comes to the nation of Israel and by extension to humanity and he says, I will keep my end of the bargain, which is to rescue you no matter what you do. I am 100% in, even if you are 0% in, because I am not dependent on you. It is like a husband vowing to his wife that he will never leave her or forsake her, for better or worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. What is a husband saying to his wife or a wife saying to her husband when they say that in their vows? They're saying, no matter how much you screw up my life, I am in this till the end. It's what a real vow is. And God is a God who never divorces his people, but is always faithful to his people and always keeps covenant with his people. But he doesn't just say, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. He gives them three promises. Therefore, rescue. Therefore, relationship. And therefore, a place. He says, I'm going to deliver you. Then he says, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give you this land as a possession. So get this. This complaining, angry people and their leader who have lost faith and don't trust God and his ways. God is coming to them and he's not just saying kind of begrudgingly like, yeah, I'm going to rescue you even though guys are a bunch of jerks. But instead, he, he's making them even more promises. 
He's seeking to engender more trust. He's not saying, if you get your act together, there's no condition to the promise. It is a unilateral promise to come through for them. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion on earth. Every other religion says, if you keep your end of the bargain, then God will reward you. Christianity says, God will keep his end of the bargain no matter what. His promise is sure. Now, how can this possibly be? Why would God be the type of person who would take on people that would be a burden to him, that he would grieve with, that he would walk with, that would be disobedient to him, that would doubt him, that wouldn't have faith in him? Why would he care about the people of Israel? Why would he care about us? Why would he put up with people like us in a church like this? Just a church full of sinners. Why would he do that? Because the greater the burden that God lifts, the more glory and honor goes to him. Because I had a privilege of having a friend named Brian Dermody, who as a a hobby was a professional weightlifter, okay? And his specialty was the deadlift. And so he went to this weightlifting competition every year named after Arnold Schwarzenegger in Ohio. And for the most part, when you talk to Brian, he was just a pretty meek guy. He ate super clean, lifted every day, but just a pretty meek guy. Didn't share a lot about his weightlifting exploits, even though I would be talking about it all the time if I was him, because the dude could deadlift almost 800 pounds. Okay? And, but I remember he would show us these videos after the competition, and he would turn into like the Incredible Hulk, right? And he would, you know, there's, there's these weights sitting on the stage, and there's a big crowd of people, and he would go out, and there'd be pump-up music playing, and then he would show us these videos of him like lifting, like deadlifting this massive amount of weight, and then dropping it, and the whole stage would shake. Now, why is he showing people those videos but I'm never showing people videos from me at the gym. <laughs> it's because, listen, the greater the burden that somebody can lift in terms of weightlifting, the more glory they get, the more impressive that it is. And here's what's true about God. God is saying, I can take all of your burdens. He, here's what God is, who, who God's recruiting into his kingdom. Needy, burdensome, complaining, doubtful, messed up sinners. Why? Because when we raise our hand and we say, I'm needy, I need help, I can't do this on my own, I can't handle my life, and we just tell everybody how messed up we are, God gets all the glory. He gets all the honor and all the praise. So if what's keeping you from the kingdom of God is you think, man, I'm just too messed up. You got this whole Christianity thing exactly backwards. Do you know why you're really not coming 
to God with all your burdens is because you want the glory. You see, we have this sick and twisted relationships with ourselves where we walk through life sort of self-doubting and complaining about how busy we are and, and all the work that we have to do and I've just got so much homework and you know I'm just going through a lot. And we think that in so doing that we can garner other people's sympathy, but what we're really doing is we're trying to get people to say to us, wow, you are amazing. You are a real hero for carrying all of those burdens. And here's what's true. If we give them to God, he will be the hero, but we will get the joy. And so my encouragement to you is give up your pride. Let him be the hero of your story. Let him take on your burdens. Listen to what Jesus says. This is proving to you that this passage is for you and that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever and that Jesus is God. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says this, talking about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, Jesus came, and on the cross, he bore the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. You see, this story in Exodus about him rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt, that was really nothing for God. He had a whole lot bigger fish to fry and that was the sin and the burden of the entire world. He can handle your mess. In fact, Jesus invites your mess. Look at Matthew 11, verse 28. He says to us this morning, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Guys, it's time for us all to just come clean. Just admit that we can't handle the burdens of our life on our own. To stop blaming God, questioning his plan, disobeying him, walking away from him, but instead to come back to him and say, I was wrong. You, will right. you are right. Will you carry me from this day forward? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're so different than all the people that we encounter and all the gods of all these false religions and the leaders of this world that instead of placing burdens on us, that you take burdens off of us. And God, we just collectively admit we don't have what it takes to follow after you. We don't have what it takes to walk faithfully with you. We need you to carry us. We need you to lift us. We need you to rescue us. And thank you that that is who you are. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.